0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. When violent crime makes the headlines, often mental health is also part of the conversation. But is that connection fair or even correct? This week, we look at the intersection of mental health and crime. On July 18th, a half-dozen people, including EMTs and firefighters, were shot by Leslie Scarlett, who died in a subsequent gun battle with Tucson police officers. In the days following the incident, we found out that Scarlett had been on a downward spiral since his mother died in a fire earlier in the year. So is mental health always tied to violent crime? Not necessarily.
1: of violent crimes involve an individual who has a mental health condition. So 96% do not.
0: That was Dr. Jasleen Chotwal, the chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson. We'll hear more from her later in the show. But first, we turn to Pima County attorney Laura Conover, who's not related to me. She says even though the incident was nearly two months ago, it's not forgotten and much can still be learned.
2: No doubt we're continuing to learn that we all have to be educated and aware and informed about mental health. It can't be this quiet secret anymore. Just as we would want to know how to recognize the warning signs of a heart attack or a stroke, we all need to know when someone is unraveling, preferably before the point of complete crisis.
0: How does the system, especially on your end, become less reactive and more proactive?
2: I think a huge frustration in every prosecutor's office is that the best we can do is so often after the loss of life. We have a a lost community member and we are trying to hold someone accountable for that loss. And what we're learning as time passes, and I think is part of criminal justice reform, is that if we can lend our efforts in the preventative stages, that that's the best part of public safety that we can do. So when it comes to, you know, we talked a moment ago about someone in the early stages of unraveling At the point where we are getting to full-on crisis, we need people again to be educated. Should I call 911 because a crime is unfolding? Or is this person in front of me disoriented and in crisis and in need of help? And then I pick up the phone to 622-6000 because I'm looking for crisis intervention professionals who know how to handle a person in crisis. And again, all of this is preventative.
0: Is there something that you can do, your staff can do? For example, a case comes across your desk or, or your staff's desk, and maybe the person isn't in crisis yet, but the signs are there. Is there something you all can do as the prosecutor, maybe to pull them out of the criminal justice system And get them some help? Or is there a combination because there are consequences for actions and and that's what your office has to deal with?
2: When we look at specialty courts and diversion programming, of course, we want to have opportunities to have specialized programming for those who are suffering mental illness. And there is a court at Justice Court that we are working with our partners to revamp at the misdemeanor level and then we need to look at those opportunities at the felony level as well. I will also say that a lot of that work is done by our partners in pretrial services while a case is pending or probation after a case is over where they know how to identify what the needs are of, of the defendant.
0: It sounds like there is a delicate balancing act, especially in your office, between mental health needs and the, the needs for prosecution. How do you balance those two?
2: It is very hard. And what we have been training here, whether we're talking about an initial appearance and whether someone should be released or held, whether we're talking about how the criminal charge should be handled through a plea or a trial whether probation should be available or not, the overarching theme is ongoing danger to the community. In other words, public safety is the first test. Is the person in front of us presenting as an ongoing threat of harm to our community? When it comes to mental health, statistically we are not seeing an ongoing threat of harm to others. It's much more likely that, that the threat of harm is to to themselves, and in fact, they are overwhelmingly vulnerable to being victims of crime. So statistically, we're not talking about uh, a shocking high number of cases, um, but where they intersect, where a person's mental health is presenting with violent tendencies, of course, we're going to take that first step to protect the community and then assess.
0: It seems like a lot of this is really a trust issue, uh, trust of the police department, the the sheriff's department, um, and and trust of your office. I would think. How do you build that trust?
2: That you know that's that's a fascinating point, and and yes, it it takes years. It's one of the many culture changes that has been necessary and and uh, of course I have to get give credit to the mental health support team um the the group of of multi-agency non-uniformed police officers who for you know almost a decade now have been out in the community building that that trust um where you know the the community members they work with with know them by name know them by their first name and know that the officer is just going to come sit down next to them for a while and check on them and eventually get around to talking about are you going to your court order treatment do you do you need a ride and it's it is it's a huge change i mean um for those individuals in particular or for the community in general that's not how we have ever viewed the police before And it's taken a decade to to really build that trust. That unit also is increasingly partnering with medical and social workers who go out to scenes with them as well. So you have that co-response, which of course is also brilliant. And then you have to get, you know, the next step from there is to get it from a specialized unit within a police department to part of all policing. And to that end, I was really heartened to go to the crisis intervention training two or three weeks ago and to see 57 new participants from a dozen different police agencies training up a whole week college, training up on crisis intervention training and and de-escalation tools.
0: That was Pima County Attorney, Laura Conover. In the aftermath of the July 18th shootings that left four people dead, it was revealed that the suspect had been struggling for months. It raised questions about any mental health safety net that exists in Pima County. Dr. Jasleen Chotwal, the chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson, who we heard from earlier, says incidents like that one always raise the question of warning signs and predictors.
1: That I think has been a question that's been asked in mental health circles for so long too, because we do feel like we're responsible for assessing. And as as a psychiatrist, I'm asked to do violence risk assessments all the time. Usually I think of those as suicide risk assessment for sure, but often we are assessing violence at a larger uh, scale when it comes to both violent crimes Violence towards others as well as violence towards oneself. Um, and, and there is an overlap in terms of mental distress. There is an overlap in terms of trauma experienced, because we know that often individuals who are perpetrators of crime may also have been victims of crime at some point. Um, there are some structural inequities that are very prevalent in our society that contribute to that violence risk.
0: Whenever there's a mass shooting or some other type of violent crime spree, we hear the person you know out there we hear oh, that person must be suffering from some type of mental illness. Is that a fair assumption on the part of society?
1: So I would say yeah, that usually is a misunderstanding on the part of the larger public because we know from data that, most violent crimes actually do not involve individuals with mental health illnesses being the perpetrators or being the ones involved in that violent act. Most of the time, individuals who have mental health conditions end up being the victims of violent crimes. What, however, I think does involve mental health is that when sometimes there is untreated mental health issues, especially psychotic health conditions or sub individuals also involving substance use and heavy prolonged substance use, that definitely can have that appearance and also sometimes result in a small number of cases of violent crimes. And so I think often what ends up happening is that a lot of violent crime occurs day to day. Many people die due to violent acts. But the things that the media picks up or get publicized more are crimes where there may not really be a clear storyline that can be put together. So, to say, you know, this person was involved in so and so gang activity or was involved in, you know, XYZ neighborhood incident, and to be able to make sense of it. I believe when we cannot make sense of something, that ends up becoming a story. And that can sometimes involve individuals who may have untreated mental health condition. And really the big thing to consider is an untreated mental health condition. And it's a very, very, very small percent of all violent crimes. The usual ratio we think about is 4% of violent crimes involve an individual who has a mental health condition. So 96% do not.
0: When it comes to people in crisis, it seems like very often the first person to show up and have to deal with that crisis is a police officer. Is that the best person to show up at that time? And if not, who needs to show up and and how do we fix that?
1: No, a police officer may not be the best person and typically is not the best person to show up. Um, Again, in Tucson, we have a mental health support team um called the mist team that can show up and they do have officers who are somewhat trained with mental health knowledge and de-escalation training Um, usually though in most successful health systems you would have something that's a crisis intervention team that would show up in tucson we can call the crisis response line or the crisis line and they are able to dispatch a MAC team, which is a crisis intervention team of sorts, which involves some therapists or psychologists who will show up and be able to engage the person in a conversation. And I think the advantage of involving somebody who has mental health training and calling the MAC team is it's more conversational, it's less threatening. There's not a police officer And in a lot of areas where uh, individuals may live who have untreated mental illness, uh, we know that they can tend to fall under lower socioeconomic strata because of the way structurally the system is set up. There are just these inherent structural inequities which people down and zip codes get divided and such, that there can already be a lot of mistrust with the police. And we also know that a lot of people who have untreated mental health concerns also come from marginalized groups, whether they're racially marginalized or socioeconomically marginalized. And in those communities, the police may not be considered a friend. So as soon as the police officer shows up, you end up having a situation where the person is on the defensive and feeling like somehow they're being told they're wrong.
0: When it comes to violence and mental health, what can we as friends, family members, neighbors, people who live in the same town do to try and break the cycle or intervene in a safe way to get the person help before we end up in a crisis with news headlines
1: even? The first thing that we can do as family members and community members is watch out for each other. Stay on the lookout. Uh, When you have a friend or a family member who typically maybe reaches out to you once a week doesn't reach out, you may want to be interested and concerned at that point. Um, So really just increasing our level of observation and awareness can be a great thing. Um, After that, usually the next step can be engaging that person in a conversation. And instead of advice giving, which is what most of us tend to go towards, really sticking towards the realm of listening and asking about that person's experience. And what you can use to start a conversation like that is just observations. So one could say, you know, I haven't heard from you in a week. Thought I'd check in. How are you doing? What ends up happening is that if we start telling them what we believe or what we feel, then we're not leaving room for their experience. And the more we can hear about what they're experiencing, the more information we'll have. And that might be one of those places where once a person has felt more listened, they may be more open to what your suggestion is, which could be you know, how about we go and see your doctor if they're already engaged in a mental health system? The other thing that could then happen if the individual's not engaged in mental health treatment at all is that you could also just ask them to go to their family doctor. That might be a less threatening place to start.
0: That was Dr. Jasleen Chotwall, the chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking at the intersection of mental health and crime. When most people think of police, it's the crime part of the equation they think of. But the Tucson Police Department has a mental health support or MIST team. There's also a team focusing on people experiencing homelessness and the substance use resource team known as CERT. That CERT team is led by Sergeant Erica Stropka
3: it's really important in the substance use team that we have an understanding of why a person would actually come to a place in their life with they would be misusing substances to a point to where they would not be able to necessarily maintain the relationships with their families, or maybe they're not able to have steady employment or have that quality of life that you would hope that everybody would have. But we also are trained in crisis intervention training CIT when we are talking to individuals in the community oftentimes it's not just about you know substance misuse sometimes it's an underlying issue of untreated mental health that's being the person's using because they're just you know maybe they they aren't getting the treatment that they should be getting for their mental health. So officers in the substance use resource team also are very well versed in being able to um, identify when an individual may benefit from mental health treatment. The mental health support team officers, they're very highly trained in understanding different mental health issues, how to utilize de-escalation skills, and Their primary focus is to serve the mental health evaluations and as well as the revocations in the community on individuals who maybe were placed on court treatment, and now, for whatever reason, they maybe are not going to services anymore, and so their case manager feels they need to be seen again by a, a doctor. The homeless outreach team, they do um, all of the outreach for any individual who's houseless, who would benefit from having a VI SPDAT, which is a vulnerability uh, index that actually screens for you know how much this person would benefit from being um, placed into housing. And our end goal in, in anything that we're doing, whether it's MIST-related, CERT-related, or HOT-related, is really to help the person to be connected with resources as well as treatment options that would help this person to not have to enter into the criminal justice system to begin with.
0: When it comes to your team and and the rest of the support teams working, how do you get called out? I assume you're not just all sitting in the office waiting for the phone to ring or, or the radio call to come in.
3: Each of our teams have a unique way in which we are assigned the work that we're doing. So in the mental support team, they actually receive all of the court orders um, that are mental health related that they need to um, go out and contact that individual and then, you know, help to transport them to the evaluation provider so that way they can get re-engaged in their services. That's separate to what we do. So what the CERT team does is we actually are looking at ways in which to try to conduct some prevention in the way of overdoses. So we have, for the last year and almost a half, we've been actually looking at the non-fatal overdose cases. So CERT officers actually are like kind of like detectives. They're assigned cases of non-fatal opioid overdoses. And What the officers will do is they will make phone calls to the individual. One of the reasons why we try to make a phone call first is because, you know, having an officer show up your door unannounced can be very startling. And we don't want people to be like, oh my gosh, what happened? We try to give people that that warning like, hey, we really want to come out and talk to you because we'd like to provide you with naloxone, which is the opioid overdose reversal drug. We'd like to talk to you about treatment and we want to see if there's anything we can do to help you because you just suffered this catastrophic overdose. And we want to give you some education. We want to just explain to you some things that you may not know are available in the community. If they can't get a hold of the person on the phone, then they'll go out to the last location that the person was known to live, and they'll try to make face-to-face contact with that person. And we are really blessed to have in our squad peer support specialists who have lived experience that actually go out with our officers. And what's awesome about having our peers is they – oftentimes can talk to a person in a way that we can't, you know, they can share their own experience and that is so profound to see when it works. You know, when you have an actual peer who can say, no, I've been very much in your shoes and I've had to go to prison and I've been in jail and I lost my family and I lost this and I lost that. And now I've been able to, because of treatment and my recovery, I've been able to get back on my feet. We also do targeted outreach. So we actually will look at the different calls coming out and we try to respond to the calls for service that appear to be substance use related.
0: Do you all get to do follow up in the sense of you've made contact or one of the other teams has made contact with somebody? Or are you so busy that you can't a couple of weeks later pick up the phone, swing by, you know, whatever, just? To check and make sure that they're getting the help they need, or maybe they need a little nudge back on to the, the road, or or whatever.
3: We have really good relationships with the people who are working in these different um, medicated assisted treatment clinics, and our theory is that if we can get the person connected with the right provider, we trust our providers to help to provide that support that that individual needs. Now, having said that, we, as in my team specifically, we have individuals, people that we actually make relationships with that we will continue to call and we'll check in with them or we'll do a home visit. My officers, I'll be honest, they actually make themselves so available that, you know, they'll get calls throughout the weekends or, you know, from individuals who they've made a really strong connection with and built really good rapport. And- Sometimes they will we'll be the ones they'll call and say, hey, I just, you know, this just happened. You know, what do I do next? And they'll ask the officers for help. That's something that we're willing to do 100%. But we also understand that not everyone feels comfortable calling a police officer when maybe they have relapsed. So that's where our peer support specialists really come into play.
0: It also sounds like there's a lot of cross-training, as you said. So if you're in contact with somebody and, yes, you're in the substance uh, arm of things, but you realize there's a larger questionnaire, you can call Kodak or one of the mental health partners and get them hopefully going down the right road.
3: It is amazing to see how much it means to somebody to hear someone who's in an authoritative Uh, role, saying, I believe in you, you can do this, Um, you're not a bad person. I mean, we say that so often, um, just reassuring people, like, your substance use disorder is not what defines you. It's a disease. We do a lot of education about that. It's a lot of what we do is just really helping to encourage uh, people who need to know that, like, we believe in them. It means a lot when it comes from a law enforcement officer.
0: So somebody hears this interview and they they realize either they they themselves need help or someone in their family needs help, be it with substance misuse or a mental health issue. How do they get hold of you? How do they get to the point where you all can give them the information and the help they need?
3: Well, specifically for substance use, um, they can actually email. TPD cert and they can just let us know what's going on or, or even just give first name, phone number, and we can call if that's easier. Um, and we'll reach out to them that way.
0: That was Sergeant Erica Stropka with the Tucson Police Department. If you need help or know someone who does, please call the crisis line at 520-622-6000. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.